You know, just now before the Lord's Supper, I kept my mask on the whole time. I thought, ah, it won't be that big a deal. It's just talking for a couple of minutes. How restrictive could it be? Good gravy. Um, so for those of you who have occupations that require you to wear this thing all day long, you have my respect and my pity uh, and gratitude. Uh, we do appreciate what you're going through right now to try to help keep everybody safe. Good to have everyone here, uh, some in the back who weren't feeling well, who were out of town, what have you. Good to have most of the home crowd here this morning as we get to study together. I would like to talk about uh, some garden scenes in Scripture. I'd like to look at three of them. I want to look at a scene from the Garden of Eden, a scene from the Garden of Gethsemane, and a scene from the garden where Jesus was laid in the tomb. That's our roadmap for this morning. Those are the three things I'd like for us to talk about. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, you're going to know this verse quite well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And Genesis 1, as you know, goes on to tell us about how God speaks all of creation into existence. So, for example, the very next verses say that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, calling the light day and the darkness night. And the rest of the chapter, and in fact the next one, also record how God speaks the entire world into existence. But the pinnacle of all that God creates comes to be man. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's what's said about man in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And not said about any other part of God's creation that we're made according to His image. And as you also know, God doesn't just make man, but He makes a home for man. Prepares him a home in the form of the garden in Eden. And the Bible even pictures God as the gardener who makes this perfect paradise For his creation, for the pinnacle of his creation. It says in Genesis 2 and verse 8 that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And as you read the verses that follow it, down up to verse 17, give or take, everything that's said is said to emphasize that this garden was truly a perfect paradise for man. There are all kinds of of beautiful trees that are planted there, including among those the tree of life. There are rivers that flow in this particular garden. It is the perfect place where everything is beautiful, everything is ideal, and then man has everything that he needs there. And what's more, there in the garden, mankind experiences the greatest of all blessings, a relationship with his creator. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, There's a statement uh, made about the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What that would seem to express is the fellowship which existed between God and man prior to the sin that happens in the the very uh, very next lines of the text. That this was something God did. Everything is is ideal in this garden that God has made. Everything is wonderful for mankind. And the instructions God has given men are are very plain. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you can eat from any tree in this entire garden planted by God himself. But do not eat of this one single tree, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, before we move on, let me ask you, is there anyone here this morning who needs to to take a little bit more time, spend a little bit more time on verses 16 and 17 so that you can understand just exactly what God is trying to say there? Does anyone need benefit from just kind of camping down on these verses for a while so that we can parse their meaning and help make this passage a little bit clearer? I doubt it. Other trees good, this tree bad. You can't eat from this tree. We can understand that. They could understand it too. Of course they could. But then the serpent comes into the picture and introduces temptation. So the serpent questions, first of all, the word of God. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, that's not what he said at all. And when the answer is given by Eve that we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, it's not just any tree. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. When Eve responds with that to try to clarify, the serpent responds and says you will not die. So at first he raises the question that exaggerates the command, exaggerates the restriction. Did God actually tell you not to eat from the garden? And that's not what God had said at all. And then he just flat out contradicts what God had said. You're not going to die. I would suggest to you Satan uses much the same method today where he calls into question the word of God, tries to make the word of God seem overbearing. And then just flatly contradicts it. What God said is not true. Yes, the Bible says this, but that's not really the way that it is. And in Genesis 3, he not only questions the word of God, he questions also the goodness of God. You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the only reason God won't let you do this is because you would then know everything he knows. And he wants to keep that knowledge to himself. What other reason would there be for telling you not to eat of this tree? So the serpent questions the word of God and then declares it to be completely false and adds to that questioning the nature of God. Is that really what God told you? Because that's not true. God's not good for telling you that. And the Bible tells us that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now you read through that. um, It sounds like, and of course it may very well be, that immediately when Eve is tempted, she at once gives in to the sin and at once involves her, or at once involves her husband as well. Um, we are familiar with the concept of biblical accounts being condensed. 
where they include all of the critical components of the story, but they condense them down to the essentials and they don't bother with all of the time spent in between. They tell you what happened, but they don't tell you every little detail of things that happened. Some of the, the teachings that we've seen in the book of Acts when Paul's been working with this or that community, you know full well he didn't just say a couple of lines to them. He spent days and days and days teaching them, but it just records the essential summary of his message. So it is possible that this account is condensed as, as biblical accounts often are. It could be that the serpent tempts Eve with these words over and over again, constantly making repeated attempts, trying to get her to give in. And Eve contemplates it, and maybe for a while she says no, but ultimately it comes to the point where, torn between obedience and defiance, she goes with defiance. Now, I don't know, but I do wonder given all that's been done for her, given the relationship she has with God, did she at least contemplate? Was there a struggle? Did they say, we know what God has said, but now the serpent says, and I don't know. Well, I don't know. I know that's how it is sometimes when I've done the wrong thing. However it is that it took place, either as concisely as it is recorded or in a more drawn-out struggle that's condensed for, for, for our reading, You know what they did. They did what they wanted to do. They did what they wanted to do. And you know what comes as a result of that. What comes as a result of it is disaster. And disaster for everyone involved in this story. For the serpent, for woman, for the man. Their choice means disaster for everyone and everything in God's created order. All of it is dramatically affected by their choice to do what they want to do. So that's one garden scene. I want to take you now to another one, to the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you'd like to turn from, from Genesis 3 to Matthew 26, that's where we're going to be for the next few minutes. Matthew 26. Um, in Matthew 26, you won't find Gethsemane called a garden, just for uh, general information. It's only called a garden in John 18 and verse 1. Finding that out kind of surprised me because we use that term Garden of Gethsemane all the time. Um, But in the Bible, it's only called that once. Even still, we know what happens in this garden, too. Since John 18 is the only time in the Bible Gethsemane is called a garden, you won't find that reference here in Matthew 26. But from Genesis 3 to Matthew 26, we've gone from, from one garden to another. And in Matthew 26 and verse 36, the text says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face And prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me even one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. Behold, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus prays, not my will. Please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And if you'll notice what we have going on here, Adam and Eve were not to eat, but they wanted to. And so they did. Jesus is supposed to drink this cup. He doesn't want to. And yet he does. He is grieved and distressed, according to verses 37 and 38. He shares this with the disciples who all fall asleep when he begs them to pray. In Luke 22 and verse 44, when he's praying in that, in Luke's account of this, he is sweating profusely from the anxiety of what faces him. His body is racked with fear at what he, what is awaiting him. Alternatively, it wouldn't have cost Adam and Eve anything to do the right thing there in their garden, in the Garden of Eden. It would cost them nothing to do what was right. It cost Jesus everything to do the right thing here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I think the contrast between these two gardens is, is, is a stark one. Adam and Eve see that the tree is good for food. It looks good to the eye. But if you look closely at the language of Genesis 2 and verse 9, that is said about every tree. This is a garden God's planted after all. So every tree is good for food and desirable to the eye. It doesn't cost them anything to do what's right. But it costs Jesus everything to do what is right and to conquer the effects of their wrong. So Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden is answered by Jesus' obedience here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Adam and Eve, their temptation was to become like God. Then your eyes will be opened. Then you'll know things that God knows. Well, that's what they wanted. They wanted to, to attain those heights. They wanted to grasp those things. In the Garden of Gethsemane, so that he could atone for our sins, God becomes a man, humbles himself, does not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped and clung to. The immortal God makes himself vulnerable to save us and undo what man had done in trying to become greater and to become more like God. So again, the contrast between these two gardens is just striking. So what this lesson is, is all about, what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will. What this lesson is all about is ultimately the decision that every one of us has to make every single day of our life. We just face it continually, just constantly, constantly. We're challenged with the option between am I going to do this God's way or am I going to live my way? Will I do what God wants me to do or will I do what I want to do? And what we have when we look at Adam and Eve is the disaster that results when we do what we want, when it stands opposed to what God wants. 
And what we have there in the Garden of Gethsemane is the beginnings of Jesus remedying the disaster and bringing salvation to us by doing what God wants. Not my will, but your will be done. And the fact of the matter is, you and I face that decision always in our life. We'll face it today in in some form or fashion. Uh, You may be experiencing this, this decision between God's ways and your ways in a very subtle way, where it's the difference between being a good moral person, a decent person who treats people well, and someone who is actually a devoted servant of the Lord. And the two aren't the same thing. Maybe it's more obvious to you than that. Maybe it's a frequent matter of either choosing sin or choosing to live as someone who's been sanctified by the Lord who decided to drink that cup. It's always the choice between our own way or God's way. When that temptation rears its ugly head, it's always the choice of, am I going to believe God and do what he's told me to do? Or am I going to do what I want to do? What the serpent, if you will, encourages me to do. Construing what God has said, perhaps outright negating it, or perhaps even thinking that what God wants isn't fair. So my choice always is between either following in the footsteps of Jesus or taking his words and getting them completely out of order. Not your will, but my will be done. As I said, I wanted to take you to a third garden scene, and that comes in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19. Incidentally, I was going to ask uh, Jared to lead us in the song 10,000 Angels because I, I thought in the garden where he lay came from that particular song, the garden where he lay, but it's the garden where he prayed and I just had it completely wrong. But that has a nice ring to it, so I'm keeping it. John 19. In John 19, when they are burying Jesus, you might recall Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are are taking part in his burial. And in John 19 and verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And the text goes on to tell us, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb on the first day of the week. She finds that stone's rolled away, and she goes and she tells the disciples that we found the stone moved, but we didn't find his body. And Peter and John, they run to the tomb and John looks in and he sees the clothes and he believes his Lord is risen. And while Peter and John have returned home, Mary stands outside the tomb weeping. When a voice says to her, why are you weeping? And expecting it to just simply be the caretaker, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, show me where he is and and I'll take care of him. The determination... That Jesus shows in the Garden of Gethsemane to do God's will. Ultimately gives way to the garden where Jesus is raised from the dead. So the Garden of Eden and the choice to say I will do my will and I'll do what I want. Leads to death in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve eat of the, the forbidden fruits God says you are dust and to dust you shall return. But when Jesus makes the decision to follow the will of the Almighty God, no matter the cost, it seems to result in death, but it ultimately results in life. 
And not just for Jesus, but for all who would believe in the Son too. So the point is that whenever you and I face the decision between either eating the fruit or not, or eating the fruit or drinking the cup, the decision is this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Doing things our way ultimately is always going to result in death. First in sin. And then death that is the wages of that sin. But doing things His way even if they result, first of all, in sacrifice and challenge, and perhaps even loss, ultimately results in reward and glory and eternal life. But I will tell you, that's, that's hard to appreciate when the temptation's right there. When the temptation to sin in a particular way, act out in a particular way, not do all that we should do, when that temptation is right there, it's hard to make that choice. And I need to remember how hard it must have been for the Lord to make His choice. There aren't too many, there are, there are times when the decision between what I want and what God wants is a very difficult decision to make, but I don't recall any time when it's left me, um, you know, sweating as drops of blood other than the fact that I'm just generally hot-natured. There's never been the time where I am just physically racked over the decision of doing the right thing. Maybe you have known such a circumstance. I can't recall one in my life. Sometimes it's hard to walk away from that temptation. Sometimes it's hard to be a godly person in a particular circumstance. Sometimes it's hard to make the sacrifice that being Christ-like requires. But I can't say as it's ever been so hard for me in making that choice as it was for Jesus there in the garden. And if my king can do that for me, I think I ought to be able to follow in his footsteps. But as I said, I think it's a very challenging decision sometimes to make or a commitment to live by. And so something that I'd like to do um, that I have not done with you very often towards the end of sermons, but I would like to do this morning, if you'll permit me, um, before we offer a moment, of, a moment of invitation, is actually in this sermon with a prayer about what we've studied about this morning. And if that's all right with you, I'd like to do that now. So if you wouldn't mind, let's bow together, please. Our Almighty Father in heaven, you are a, a great God that has done great things for us. And you have paid such a tremendous price for us in order that we might be saved. And this morning, because of the songs we've sung, the prayers that we've prayed, the scriptures that we've read, and especially the supper that we've partaken of, we are mindful of the love that you have for us. And we pray that you would help us to love you greatly in return. Pray that you would give us the strength to face the seemingly infinite number of decisions that we face in this life between right and wrong that ultimately come down to the same 
singular decision of your way or our way. Pray, Father, that you would please have mercy on us and forgive us for the times that we have decided to go our own way. And we ask that you would please give us the strength and the humility to walk in your way and follow the path that your son led for us. Pray, Father, that you would give us the strength this week to say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. We are very uh, thankful for the gift of Jesus and the gift of eternity that he promises. And we would praise him for the determination that he showed to do your will. And because of his commitment to you, we can be with you again. Pray, Father, that you would help us to follow his example in all things. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So by way of invitation, I would simply say, in if all your life you've been walking your way, or recently, as we talked about uh, just before the Lord's Supper, if you've had a very bad week spiritually, if you've been walking your way this week and you need God's forgiveness, then it is quite time to follow in Jesus' footsteps. and Confess your faith in your Lord and be buried with him in baptism if you're not a Christian or if you are one to live as one. Die to self once more, if that's what you need to do. And be raised through that prayer for forgiveness to walk in renewed life. I hope God, may God help you to make that decision now. And I hope very much that you will. And if we can help you with that this morning by praying with you or baptizing you into Christ, whatever your need may be. Won't you please let us know while we stand and sing.